What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello, welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Real quick, if you haven't heard it yet, I want to highlight our sponsor, Cape Clasp. Most recently, they launched a collection of 100% ocean plastic sunglasses and bracelets. I can't think of a better business model than taking plastic that has made its way to the ocean that's killing marine life and turning it into not only functional, but really nice, useful accessories like these sunglasses, which are polarized and lightweight. If you like the ocean, if you like sustainability and you're in the market for sunglasses or jewelry as a gift for somebody else, a thoughtful birthday present, you can also get 30% off. So at that rate, these sunglasses are like 25 bucks. Go to capeclasp.com and use the code SMART. You got to use that code SMART, capeclasp.com. Use the code SMART, 30% off. All right. I hope you stuck around because the payoff is this episode. In episode 396, I talked to Dr. Ethan Cross. It was one of my favorite conversations in a while. And what's crazy is I'll say that this one, just two episodes later, 398 with Nick Vogue, is at that same level ones that I will forever remember, ones that have shaped the way I think and operate in the world. I don't say that every time. You might think so, but I don't. Go check the tape. So Nick directs the McGraw Center's learning programs at Princeton University. He is a founding member of the Princeton Perspective Project. Basically, Nick teaches teachers how to teach, teaches people how to learn. What I love about this is Nick's not here promoting a book. The way I found him was a friend sent me an obscure YouTube video, and I was blown away. Here is an idea of what caught my attention. Many of us, especially those that want to achieve, 
probably those listening to this podcast. We often place our self-worth on the results we achieve from the actions we take, whether that be at work, in a hobby, in a physical endeavor. What Nick talks about, informed by self-worth theory, is that if we associate our worth with the outcomes we achieve, think about how less likely we are to take risks and to try new things. So by the very nature of trying to achieve, we are less willing to do the things that will lead to said achievement. That's just one part of it. This is one of those ones I'm asking you to share with a friend. Send them the link, put it on social. I think a lot of people will benefit from this episode. Here's our episode with Nick Vogue as we talk about self-worth theory, procrastination, and more. Enjoy. I was just telling you before I hit record, uh, a friend of mine sent me a video you were in, but I'm not always prepared to be blown away. In about one minute, you made me question everything <laughs> that I have done my entire life. Mm. That's why I want to have you on. So I want to prepare the listeners for that. And I'm, I'm jumping right in. Great. Self-worth theory. Would you kind of just kick us off with what self-worth theory is and also how you became immersed in it? Sure. Yeah. So self-worth theory... Uh, it's a psychological theory. It's, it's really almost like a meta theory or a paradigm, meaning it's really used to explain lots and lots of human action. Maybe you might even think of it as trying to explain the human condition. My research and my work is a little more narrowly focused on achievement. But so f just to give you an example, self-worth theory is a framework that's used um, in the book or as a foundation for the book, Whistling uh, Vivaldi, if anybody knows about that and stereotype threat. So the point is it's applicable to lots and lots of realms of human action. And so self-worth theory posits that as human beings, we have this, the paramount psychological need. So the sense of, is to maintain a sense of ourselves as able and capable, competent people and to be perceived that way by other others. Um, more concretely in the contemporary society where, uh, and particularly in a work environment or school environment where achievement, we're being compared to other people, our worth, our deservedness is often connected or assessed or equated, um, to our achievements, our attainments. We internalize that. And so we're carrying this around. We have this sense of how am I being perceived? Am I smart enough? Am I capable enough? Is that good enough? And that's influencing our choices, our perceptions, our thoughts. Um, so to give, again, to kind of contextualize it, if I'm sure many of your listeners know about mindset and growth and fixed mindset. Yeah. So this is Carol Dweck's work. Is that right? Is that, yeah. Carol Dweck. And so um, it's related in the sense that underlying a lot of these perceptions is a very narrow, rigid view of our ability as fixed, largely innate, and unchanging. And with that context, in an achievement context, we often are seeking to protect ourselves as well as trying to achieve and attain. And that dilemma uh, creates some, some challenges and creates some puzzles motivationally, which we'll get into it later. That was something that stuck out to me about one of the talks, is the dilemma between I want to achieve and I don't want to fail, which mm -hmm. seem almost diametrically opposed. But as you put them, 
they're they're not really. They're part of the bigger story. Can you talk about that? Because so many people listening sure. feel this. And mm -hmm. essentially what we're going to get into is how it leads to procrastination. My mentor at UC Berkeley, Professor Martin Covington, who did literally four decades of research on self-worth theory um, in educational contexts, but beyond that as well. He made a really important insight built on McClellan and some other earlier researchers. And so and, and with respect to this idea of these two different kinds of motivation, approach, seeking and striving for success, but also fa avoiding failure. So early on in motivation research and theory, these were seen as two ends of a single continuum, right? I want to achieve, so I don't want to fail. But if you put them as two different dimensions that intersect, you get a quadrupolar model. So people can, some people are really motivated to achieve, and, but they're not too fearful of failure. So these would be something like the growth mindset folks, right? Because they're not fearful of failure because they don't interpret any kind of setback to failure as reflecting on their ability, or they see that as that ability as a temporary step, stage. I can grow this ability. I can get better. But many people, myself included, are high in the desire to achieve. And this is a fundamental human need to attain. Uh, it's a big part of positive psychology and well-being theory, if you're familiar with that. If you know PERMA, the A is attainment or achievement. This is a fundamental human need to achieve. Yet we also need to protect ourselves. Self-preservation is pretty fundamental as well. And we can understand these as two separate dimensions. So I can be high on the desire to achieve. I really, really want to win. I want to attain. I want to get a good grade. But boy, I'm powerfully motivated not to look st stupid, not to um, not meet an expectation or that of someone else or that I've established and fall short of that. So failure doesn't mean an objective measure of 45 on the test to use an academic or a school setting. It means not meeting an expectation of yourself or other. So failure is a psychological experience. Um, to some people, getting an A is a failure. Are there Princeton students who say, well, an A plus is expected and an A is good? Wow. Wow, exactly. So the point is, you can be high in achievement, you know, striving to achieve or an approach motives, but you can also be low. And conversely, you can be high in um, avoidance and protective or low. And these different combinations then lead to different uh, consequences. And it helps to unpack one of the motivational puzzles, which is procrastination where people really, really want to attain things, yet they're stuck. How do we explain that? Um, so self-worth theory and this quadrupolar model really help us to unpack that. And believe me, we're going to get into procrastination. But I could spend a lifetime just talking about self-worth theory, as mm -hmm. you partly are and right. your mentor did as well. A couple of things I want to reflect on here. First, starting from the beginning, why is the human condition based on maintaining a sense of ourselves through our capabilities. Like, why do we feel that so intently? Is it part of our evolution? Is it part of survival? Is it part of fitting into the tribe? I think it's conceivably all of those things. For And so here I'm going to get into some conjecture. People have conjectured, and I'm going to give you, you mine. But certainly, um, so one, in terms of tribe, that's a big idea, is that uh, so self-worth, comes from, in part, 
looking at others and how they perceive our worth, our deservedness, and our sense of belonging, and our potential, our value to the community. This is human, right? Humans are social creatures. We take cues about ourselves from others. So one argument is that self-worth based on ability is so important because that in, and performance, that indicates our value to the community, to the tribe, which is essential to our preservation, right? Historic, evolutionarily, we don't survive by ourselves. That doesn't happen. So we need to be very attuned to other people, and we need to be attuned in particular to, the, to our worth and value to that community and deservedness and belonging and affinity and connection. At the same time, in a more contemporary society, we can see that um, in the capitalist logic, in a world of work where we get compensated with money, that's a, that's a relatively new thing in human history. But I think it also kind of over-determines, if you're familiar with that term, the same dynamic, meaning that is this this dynamic belonging is made even more manifold is added onto in school contexts any kind of achievement context where basically we're communicate our society communicates you're as worthy as your work so let me give you an example a lot of times in teach in schools we'll say well that student got a good grade so now they're a good student and then they're just kind of become good do you know what I mean? Like, that yeah. is the language. Yeah. So we literally are equating our, our, our people in authority, including our parents, hopefully inadvertently and usually inadvertently, are equating and attaching their affirmation, their approval to our performance. And so we can see that that equation becomes very strong and is tied into symbolically, and humans are symbolic creatures, um, or another way to put it is sometimes called a learned need, right? So there's an innate needs and drives, but there's learned needs where we associate our safety and our approval with performance in a contemporary environment of work and school. Uh, so I think those are two of the ones. I think they both point in the same direction. But there's lots of evidence that suggests, and then there's the psychological one, right? We, if we're going to feel good and have a sense of well-being, our sense of our self-regard is pretty fundamental. So uh, human conscious. I'm going to get a little theoretical. No, let's go. Philosophical. Let's go. I, All am, right. I am in this, man. Let's go. <laughs> okay. So, you know, what makes humans humans is our consciousness of ourselves and our own interiority, our own subjectivity, but and our consciousness of other people's subjectivity. Does that make sense? So we are different from most creatures in that we can recognize ourselves and we have access in real time, metacognitively, to our own internal processes. And we can develop great and accurate, by virtue of that, other people's interior processes. We can imagine what they're thinking of us, what they're judging about us, how they're evaluating us. So I think this is, again, and this is less worked out even in my own thinking, but this is pretty fundamental to human beings. So we're constantly running a couple of programs. We're assessing ourselves. We're thinking about how other people are viewing us. Um, We're trying to do the task at hand as we're doing that. Um, and we can anticipate and predict. We can engage in prospection. We can imagine the results of things. Um, and we can also be monitoring retrospectively. So um, the point is that there's all these dimensions of human experience that people can imagine, can think about, can monitor, and then project onto other people. And so there's a lot going on there. Um, and I think that's built because that's built into the organism, what makes us human, that we, we are designed to do that. And so we will. And when we then are placed in achievement context, we'll be monitoring all these dimensions okay. or very likely. Yes. Okay. So, Unless we're in flow. 
Ah, okay. We'll get into flow. By the way, that is my number one book of all time. Flow is my favorite book. Do you think that we're doing it right when we are basing our sense of self-worth on both our own perspective and others? I get torn in between this idea. It doesn't matter what other people think. Because you're human, you're inherently good and you have self-worth. And it sounds great. Mm -hmm. But then I get mad at myself when I don't live that way. But what you're saying is it is human to feel this way. So do you believe your self-worth is not determined by others? Do you think that's fundamentally false? Um, Like you, I think it's kind of complicated. So I'm going to start by saying, I'm going to make a little move and say, let's withhold judgment and evaluation, particularly from a moral, whether it's right or wrong or good or bad, and start with an assessment of what it means to be human. And that we have these dispositions and inclinations, and they're deeply built into us. They're reinforced in our societies uh, through work and school. They're reinforced in our homes, on our families. Um, these are powerful forces. So let's start with a little bit of self-compassion and say, hmm, yes, there are forces operating on me, within me, um, that are not fully adaptive or helpful, but they are there. And I don't need to judge them to understand them. And the, In fact... The earlier in the process of self-examination and retrospection I judge, the less likely I'm going to do a good analysis. So can we put aside any kind of judgments of right or wrong and simply look inwards and try to understand what these dynamics are and understand where they come from? And if, based upon the previous conversation, we stipulate that these are deeply embedded in the organism as drives and needs, they're not eradicated easily, uh, irrespective of powerful messages, whether they be on social media or religion or whatever, um, we can actually believe something in a conscious level and actually not believe it at an unconscious level or even semi-conscious or out of consciousness. So there's a word for this in philosophy. It's called an alif. Tell me Look more. It up. I've got yeah. now. You've, you've hooked me. Let's go. So, so an alif is a, is a belief. I mean, it functions as a belief. It shapes our perceptions and our thinking and our processes, but we don't actually... Uh, accept its accuracy. We don't believe believe it. We don't, excuse me, we don't agree with it. So we have a belief that we usually get through socialization, but we've internalized, we may not be fully aware of it, but we actually don't agree with it. So I can say, for instance, I think that's what you were saying, right, I've been persuaded that my worth isn't and maybe even shouldn't be associated with my achievements, yet I seem to act as if I believe it. Right. So you can hold a belief, which is a kind of thought-feeling with long duration that's connected with other beliefs and is deeply embedded in, in your body and your organism, but actually not agree with it. We've been conditioned, we've been socialized to get at this. So, and people have addressed this, philosophers, Buddhists, in their uh, epistemology and their examination of human Buddhist psychology says, yeah, you have beliefs, you've been thoroughly conditioned to believe things that are inaccurate. Um, so first, be gentle, recognize that these messages and that the messages from society are conflicting. I would simply say, what are the advantages and disadvantages, the pros and cons of associating our worth with these different realms, internal versus external achievement? And then if something doesn't work for you, try to change it uh, and find some concrete strategies for doing that. Now, it may sound like I'm skipping, I'm avoiding the issue, but let me say one more thing. So some people say that one's worth comes from, is endowed by a creator. I don't hold that view because I don't, I'm thoroughly secular, but I get that. 
That makes sense. And if you do, I think it's a, it's wonderful. I see people's worth coming from their, the fact that we are literally all unique and distinct creatures. And some people say, yeah, yeah, but some people are better than others. Um, but actually, I don't believe that necessarily to be true. Um, we are unique. If you think about, I'm just going to kind of guide you through. Think about, has anybody had your particular family experience? I've had, had your educational experience. Uh, I've traveled the world with a backpack for a couple of years. This changed me fundamentally. And you know that, that's distinctive to me. I've met my mentors, Marty Covington. I've had that class. I read this book. I'm one of nine kids. Who who does that anymore? <laughs> <Nobody>. <laughs> um, right. Um, I've you know all these different things. If you put them as a U, you know the Euler's diagram or Venn diagram of overlapping dimensions, there is no one in that circle in the end but me. And that's the case for you and everybody else. So I believe that we gain our value even socially as well as personally by digging into more and more who we are individually. Ooh. Does that make sense? It does. You just spoke to every course creator in the world because the amount of times I've heard that from a sales perspective, different from yours, philosophical, more meaningful perspective, right? It's like everybody's an expert. And I've been the person like, no, you're not. You mentioned something there about there's advantages and disadvantages. And one of the things might be to say, how is it serving you or not serving you? Or what outcomes are you getting? But this is, again, another conundrum I find myself in. I want two things at the same time. You actually talk about this in one of your talks. I want to be extremely happy, joyous, excited, valuable, meaningful, all these things every day. Yeah, and yeah. I want to accomplish in the Western sense, meaning right. I want to have money. I want to have my house. I want to provide for my family, right? At this very second, my thought process is it's hard to do both well. Because if I can change my mind to truly value myself as a human for who I am and not be so concerned externally, I'm pretty sure I'd be a happier person. But I also think I'd be a lazier person, societally speaking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Two wants opposed. How do you deal with that? One of the things I do want to say is there are real material consequences for the choices we're making, not only self-worth and self-concept, right? And that's what kind of what you're getting at. And they certainly feel at odds and they are sometimes at odds there's not i don't necessarily believe that these are always commensurable and there's always a resolution uh that is happy and wonderful but i do think we can look around the world and see examples of people who have knitted together and linked or Mar marty used to use the word yoked uh yoked together these two objectives right you can do well and you can do good so you can feel good about yourself now that's not always easy um, it's, there are some decisions that are made at a top level. My father was a physician. So to do well and, and to do good for people that, that comes together for the most part. You can, you can see how that goes in education. Hopefully I'm doing well, doing good and maybe not as well as some, but I'm doing well enough. Um, but so that's sometimes some big level, top level decisions, but some of it's day to day. What is it that I'm thinking about why I'm doing what I'm doing? So I might be, I'm developing a course, or I'm reaching out to, uh, we're doing some faculty development at a university. It's really easy to think, okay, I'm building my portfolio, this is a stepping stone. It's all true. My enjoyment of that will decrease probably if I'm thinking in those terms. But it's also true that I'm doing something that is fascinating to me. I'm serving other people, including these faculty, and the students will benefit. I can make an active choice about what I put into the forefront of my mind and what keeps what is, informs my intention and my actions. 
Um, they're both true. There are places where they diverge, absolutely. But the more I'm thinking about intrinsic motivations, things that are within my control, uh, my passions, my interests, my curiosities, these will almost always lead to deeper immersion, deeper engagement, and actually better quality work. Um, and so that's a place. It's So discipline or making adjudicating some of these things really is an act of creativity. How do I find a way to bring together these objectives, perhaps embed one in the other? So I think, for instance, people having a calling or a mission. And if the mission is to, in my case, it's to reduce the suffering of as many people as possible, especially students, then does this podcast do that? Does developing, writing an article do that? Does studying and getting up the latest research do that? Does putting myself out there and risking failure do that? The more I'm thinking about these socially valued and personally valued objectives, things that fascinate and interest me, uh, things that are inherently enjoyable, the more I can actively choose those intentions, then my experience will be positive. The quality of my engagement will be better, and I'll actually produce better almost always. There are times when it diverges. I don't. I'm not a Pollyanna-ish. No. You know, you got to be strategic for sure. And there are times you have to make tough choices. Well, and and that's what you know. It it hooked me in your TED talk, and we're going in that direction. Most people listening want to create, right? They and they want to create for the sake of creation, for the sake of joy, for the sake of world mm -hmm. betterment, and mm -hmm. an outcome mm -hmm. would be great if I get some some benefit from it. Uh, but a lot of the people who strive as hard for the achievement are doing hard things. And also, I have found, maybe you know something different out of the research, those that strive tend to also be the perfectionist to an extent, mm, which mm -hmm. prevents a lot of that progress. Right. And you said something in your talk. You said, look, I'm even nervous right now giving this talk. Mm -hmm. But then what I tell myself is this is an experiment. This is an opportunity. And like the feeling I got in my bones hearing that spoke to all the things I'm trying to build. Why do I think when I'm building something, if creation number one isn't perceived as excellent, then it's not worth it. Right. And I, it makes sense from a certain set of beliefs. So first of all, I would, I would start from the point of view that it does make sense okay. and then examine how it makes sense. And that'll bring you in my, my framework to a set of beliefs that you might not agree with or you find inaccurate and maybe materially or literally inaccurate. So if we have a perfectionist perspective, if we believe, have a fixed mindset about ability, it makes sense what you just said, because if I'm a genius, if I'm brilliant, I've been told that since I was eight, any single ex um, counterexample disproves that. So I should be able to do that from the beginning. I should be able to de deliver perfection if I'm brilliant, right? So yeah. any single example, counterexample can disprove this belief. Even though we may not consciously hold it or we can examine and say, actually, that's not true. And not in a self-deprecating way, but just in the, in the reality of Einstein and Feynman and Newton all said, I'm pretty much normal. I just work really hard. They all said that. I can give you quotes. Right. Um, whether that's true is another matter. Right. But the, point, <laughs> the point is they had some understanding that even if you're really, really good at something, it doesn't come out right the first time. So th that's the first point is um, 
I think as a, I love the phrase you said, feel it in my bones. So we, what we want to get to is a point where we're introspecting and examining to a point where we get, use our thought processes to get to a sense of belief that we can feel it and something shifts within us. Something resonates and we feel differently and we can do that through our thinking. And so, um, I believe that perfectionism, imposter syndrome, these can be analyzed quite effectively through a self-worth theory lens, and especially this underlying foundational set of beliefs where we equate our performance and our attainments with our ability and our worth. And so perfectionism, it's not my favorite term. I prefer something like exceedingly high expectations, which doesn't roll off the tongue, but I don't want to be perfect, but I want to be transformative or original or creative. Yes. So... That's not quite perfection. Some people say, well, that perfection doesn't apply to me, but they're exceedingly high expectations. They're often unrealistic um, versions of those, and they're not often attainable with the first shot, right? So if whatever we call it, these super high expectations, even better would be unrealistic expectations, we're setting ourselves up, right? If they're unrealistic, we're setting ourselves up not to, <laughs> to realize them because they're unrealistic, but they're based on these beliefs. So if I can dig down and say, where does that belief come from? I can understand myself. Hey, yeah, it even has some per- functions. It can have some benefits. It drives me to work hard and, and to strive and to say yes to things, even as it has negative consequences. So the first move, again, is to say, it does make sense. Procrastination does make sense as a protective strategy. It may not be adaptive, it often is not. It's not maybe not useful to you. It's often not. But it's absolutely understandable as part of the human condition. It makes sense as human beings, even if it doesn't make sense in terms of rational strategizing or productivity, right? I think that's what you meant. Yeah. But it makes sense when we understand what it means to be a human being with conflicting motivations and a powerful desire to protect ourselves. I think, based off of our discussion, that most people get to a mild level of success by not being overly concerned with uh, above excellence, Mm -hmm. what we are calling perfectionism. But the people who make it to the pinnacle do not have that. Let's take sports, for example. Okay. When I was younger, I remember I did not care about being good. I just loved getting better. But then what happens is you get, and this happens to a lot of kids, you get to about 12, 13, and you're good. Mm -hmm. And people start saying, you're good. You know, you might have a future in this. And then guess what? Every time I strike out, every time I miss a ground ball, it is no longer, how do I do that better? It's maybe I'm not good enough. The thing that gets us to believe we are exceptional can also be the thing that prevents us from actually being exceptional. Wow, you just hit something super powerful that's actually in Carol Dweck's research, but no one ever talks about which is a a fixed mindset about ability is adaptive and useful until it's not. And it's like going off a cliff. There we go. Because you get confidence. People are telling me I'm good. I'm good. Going into a situation saying I'm best, I'm brilliant is really great for your confidence, right? And confidence and optimism contributes to um, your performance because you're immersed. You expect to do well. That's a powerful force on your performance. But when the world and your experience then doesn't comport with that, because you hold a rigid view, then you say, well, I guess I'm not. Or you begin to monitor that. And just notice the act. Even in, So I played a lot of sports, too. Even sports, which is primarily physical, but it has a mental dimension. To the extent that you're monitoring how you're being perceived or the significance of that ground ball or that curve ball, 
then you're not immersed in the moment and your performance is going to go down. Therefore, you're increasing the chance you're going to not meet the expectation and you're going to affirm this doubt or fear that you have. I does mean, that right? make sense? It does. It, happens at, it also happens at business meetings. Right. How many times are we sitting around the table thinking, well, they just said that. Or, how am I being perceived? Or when we were back in, in classrooms in college in the, in the, in the discussion section, or the precept, or the seminar, and you're like, I have no idea what this professor is saying, but I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say that. And I bet I was like, you're thinking about what other people know and what they don't know. All of those layers mean you're not thinking about the physics or the philosophy in front of you. Right. And then you, you can't learn as much because all this mental processing is devoted to these very fundamental nothing to be ashamed of mental processes. Yes. Hey everyone, it's John here, and I'm here to talk to you about LinkedIn jobs. During this great reshuffle, a record number of employees are considering switching jobs, so now's your chance to try to attract them. LinkedIn jobs is here to help you connect with the people you want to interview faster and for free. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Then, add your job in the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring so your network can help you find the right people to hire. Simple tools like screening questions make it easy to focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience so you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com smart. That's linkedin.com smart to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode. What I think you add to the equation that was so fascinating to me is this idea of why do we place our self-worth on that output? That's what really got me. Another very perceptive point about the, both the strengths and benefits of a, of a mindset perspective, but also its limitations. I think mindset is so useful in understanding that the unique significance of our theory of ourselves and our ability and theory of mind. And Dweck's work was initially called theory of mind. I don't know if you know about that. No. That's what it was called. And she, studied, she was studying how children thought about their own minds. So this going back to this idea of our own consciousness and what makes us unique. And in particular, so she discovered the role of ability. And that converge. Actually, my mentor, Marty Covington, knew Carol Dweck. They both studied motivation. I've met Carol, lovely generous, uh, intellectual giant. But there is a question, it seems to me, that's left unanswered by that, which is, but why does it matter? So I have this fixed there mindset, I don't, do, I don't do well, so what? Yeah. And I think it's because we attach it to the, there's another dimension, which is more like the why. So how, self so mindset, and I'm not, I haven't read the last several years of mindset research, they may have taken it further, but uh, Carol and her protégés, many wonderful, fantastic protégés. Uh, but we have to ask this, well, why? why is, what's at stake? Why does it matter? Why does it have so many consequences that they've demonstrated empirically through research? Why is that? And you said it, it's because we equate it with our worth. Now that's another that's another dimension. It's, it adds uh, the, the force and the magnitude of that belief. Now, and then, and so one of the challenges too is in how do you change people's beliefs? So there's a big emphasis right now on habits and, you know, that's about focusing on the behavior, just what people do. And that simplifies 
things because you just say, okay, just do it, the Nike thing, and you know, just change the action. However, um, that is not for most people sufficient because our intentions go into our behavior, our emotions go into our behavior, our cognitive processes and decision making go into our behavior. These all rest upon beliefs and values that are also influencing our behavior. And so uh, that surface level observable act. So yes, if in certain environments, if your contact is constrained, someone can make you act and behave in a certain way, but it, but these other processes are operating. So for instance, I think that's what you're getting at is, how do I change beliefs? These seem to be of a different order than behavior, right? They're a different thing than, and they're a different thing than thought. So we know if you know the work on cognitive distortions, cognitive behavior therapy, super valuable tools, that's changing the content of your mind right now. The framing, the language, I use it all the time. But that, the durability of that, and the persistence and the depth are not the same as a belief. Do you see what I'm getting yes. at? Yes. And I'm like, please tell me that because because you you have hit on so many things that I find flawed with my knowledge. That's where it ends. I, I Like I live in this space, right? So in learning mm-hmm. development, how do we change behavior? And you can change behavior in a lot of ways, but it's not sustainable. And that's based, I think, in a, a lot of people call it values, beliefs. So keep going. Yeah. Right. And so I just want to add, so there's these, I, I sometimes call it the seven layer cake of procrastination, which is, or the seven layer cake of action, because procrastination is a puzzling action that reveals something really interesting about the human beings, particularly our mixed motivations. But so there's the observable action of the course. And then there's the intention in action. In that moment, we have a certain intention, a kind of energy toward an aim that is in, animates our actions. That's one level. That's often informed by particular feelings that we have, emotions, moods, the affective dimension, uh, the di- dimension of the cognitions, right? Frames, ways of thinking, schema, scripts, but be- they, and that we have gained consciousness. Beliefs are and values, and I, to me, a, belie- uh, a value is a belief that we put a, a make a moral judgment upon, and we hold as high and important to us. These. Uh, number one, sit in our humanness, in our minds, in a different way than thoughts and feelings. They often get there by different means, too, through conditioning and socialization and are or- originate very early in our lives. Uh, and they're often hard to get at. Um, but they're super powerful and durable. They'll influence, in my view, all the layers above it. Beliefs influence emotions influence mo- and motivations and thoughts. So in the model of self-worth theory... This equation of equating my performance, my ability, and then equating out my worth rest on more fundamental Ooh. beliefs. Ooh. You just added a layer, though. So I mentioned I used to work for Franklin Covey, and in The Seven Habits, it's thoughts lead to our emotions, our emotions lead to actions, our actions lead to results. But So thoughts and beliefs in this case are considered the same. However, beliefs are pre-conscious almost, pre-thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? Do you have an answer for that? Because if you do, how have you not won the Nobel Prize? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, my answer is not very good. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> let's see. I'm still working it out. Well, well played. Um, well played. So first of all, I'm going to say something a little controversial, I think, which is you actually don't have to change. You don't have to change your beliefs to change your thoughts, feelings, or actions. Right. So that's important. So we can say, look, I'm going to aim to change my actions. I'm going to be aware that my beliefs are not helping me toward the actions that I want always. So I want to know that. 
That's not bad. I don't have to judge myself and say, oh, God, I don't have the right beliefs. You know, that because that's not helpful. Be self-compassionate. Accept the reality of, of the human condition. And then say, and I want to make some choices. And so beliefs oper- and, and beliefs operate in this way um, as a human being. So I'm going to use all these tools of habit formation and creating my environment and designing my environment to cue me and reward me. I'm going to use social supports. I'm going to master uh, CBT and emotional self-regulation. And I'm going to build mindfulness and I'm going to cultivate my attention. All of those things. I advocate any and all those things that work for you. If they don't work for you, find others. There's a ton of tools. And I can find some ways to work on belief. So I... I can, through, you know, through history and the wisdom traditions, meditation, people change their beliefs through prayer. I'm all for that if it works for you. But another way we change our beliefs, actually, is through our own experience. So this is what I believe. For instance, we get confidence not because we, people tell us you're good at something, or good at, because we do it well. And we notice that. And we observe it. We understand why. And we do that again and again and again. So it takes a long time. So I think we change our beliefs by acting in different ways. So they're connected, but they are not sufficient, right? So that's one. I think we also change our beliefs by how we think and talk, right? That's a dimension. So I think that it's not linear in the way that uh, it sounds like at Franklin Covey described it. I would not say that it is. I'd say it's recursive. It's constantly cycling back. But they're not all the same. They're not all the same power and magnitude and significance. Beliefs are more durable. Beliefs yes. influence the knock-on down the line more. And, and that's why I like what you're saying here, because I think at this point, especially people listening to this podcast, have the idea that I can change my thinking. In fact, a lot of the most impactful interviews I've done have been like this. Our thoughts literally shape our reality. There was Mm -hmm. a guy we interviewed who said, memory, for example, if you think I saw the car and it was this color, it will actually shape your memory, which will shape the way you experience that moment. I'm butchering it to some extent, but but and he actually goes into neuroscience about how your thoughts will will actually change the way your brain fires, which you might have seen Absolutely. the car as blue. You might have seen it as red. And guess what? You were both right. So then I go into like, that's essentially the matrix. If the way I'm thinking through something changes the way I experience the world, what's the difference between your reality and my reality? Another guy said, you know, we are submarines that never touch water. We actually never touch reality. We experience right. it through my instruments. Position. But what sticks with you deeply are the things that get ingrained that inform those thoughts, right? And what I love, one of the things you said, it's our actions. And I want to give an example. I had a a really tough time when I started the professional world. Everybody listening knows this. And it shaped then my professional career. So ever since then, I've worked multiple jobs in multiple industries, everything from working at startups, building a nonprofit, working for, you know, one of the largest companies in the world. Why do I say that is because this, my belief based on those actions is that you're not tied to an organization. If you don't like it, leave. If you don't like your boss, leave. It's not a big deal. You'll be fine. And what I'm amazed at is the amount of people that operate out of fear of not being at this company. 
That doesn't mean I don't like the company or you don't. It just means you don't have to operate out of like, this is the only company in the world. And what you're shaping for me is I might have and probably would have felt the same way if it wasn't for my experiences, which have shown me otherwise. And I don't have to show up to work every day thinking that it's just deeply ingrained in my bones. It's re- that's a great example. It's resonating with what, something I see. You know, I, I don't know if I mentioned, but I work at Princeton University. Uh, my, just as an aside, I teach faculty how to teach and students how to learn from that instruction. So actually, my expertise is in how people learn uh, and procrastination and motivation are obstacles often to that. Uh, and you might think, well, Princeton students, they don't, not, they don't procrastinate. And why do they need help learning? They're the, well, there's lots of reasons. But one of the things that fascinates me uh, and and I have a lot of empathy is a lot of Princeton students are actually very fearful of their prospects. And at some level, you're thinking, wait a second, you you go are, to Princeton. you're super capable. Right. You're going to get a degree that's going to be a ticket. You couldn't be safer, right? Yeah. But that's not how they're thinking of it. A few reasons why. One is socially, right? That, well, this sets an expectation. I went to Princeton. I got to do X, Y, or Z. And they come to Princeton and we tell them, well, you're going to change the world. We selected you because you're so brilliant. So that's setting people up for, right? The P equals A equals W. You're as worthy as you're, you're, you are here. You're deserving because you're special. You're the cream of, cream of the crop, not because you're a good person or you're going to, right? So we're sending that message, number one. Number two, um, and this is something we haven't mentioned, that there is a, the research clearly shows that uh, in, the, in the academic context, which is a particular kind of achievement context, students are most motivated to retain or to protect and defend their sense of cap- capableness and ableness. So we're more powerfully motivated, most people, to hold on to, to protect what we have. And this is across all kinds of dimensions of human behavior, right? Preservation, retaining, defending, protecting is even more powerful than the the desire to achieve, to strive, to seek after. So when we're put in this context, whether it be Nestle or Princeton, most of us, we're more more motivated to hold on to. And that can then lead us to be conservative, conserve, protective, defensive. And that's not just in the abstract or these high-level decisions, but moment to moment, the way we engage. We engage in class to not look dumb rather than to learn as much as possible so that on the exam, I can do as much as I can do as well as I possibly can. And I've done all of these things, but I think, and then it's interesting, you described your experience as crucial. So I alluded, I think I alluded to the fact that I, you know, I backpacked around the world for a couple of years after college, uh, it's a very different environment in the 1980s and I, you know, very different economic environment. I, I'm, I'm, I was very lucky. But one thing I learned from those, from living abroad and traveling abroad was that there's a lot of different ways to live in this world. So I was in Southeast Asia and South America and saw glimpses of the world and ways of people living that seemed happy and interested and engaged and like, oh, there's, and then the people I met who were traveling and their stories, there are so many ways to live. So I was so lucky at 24, 25 to be learning this. And so I didn't, never saw a particular pathway as necessary. And so um, for the students out there and, I, I, and young people, here's an observation. I see in a way that I didn't see before 
that there's so many messages to students that if you don't do it a certain way, it's not that it's that you're choosing another path, that somehow it's wrong or less than. So Princess students who don't go into consulting and finance, <laughs> many of them aren't just, they're not just thinking, oh, I'm choosing another path. They're thinking, oh, I'm doing it wrong. Yeah. And that framework then leads you to be productive in pursuit rather than, oh, I'm doing something different. There's lots of ways to do it and I'm doing it this way. They're, they're laying over that of value judgment. And it's not coming from nowhere. It's coming from the institution. It's coming from our society. It's coming from their families. Um, but I would just want to say, if we define our path as so narrow, this razor's edge of the right way to do it, if we start from there, that creates suffering and pain and defensiveness and protectiveness. And you, you have had experience. We say, I know that's not true. Mm-hmm. I know that. And you feel it in your bones. To go back to that phrase you said. Not everybody's had that experience. We all know deep down that experience is valuable. Experience creates who we are. But making the transition from experience creates beliefs, which creates thought, which creates, like that is new to me. And I Mm. wholeheartedly believe it. Now, you also said there's other ways, right? Prayer, meditation, things like that. And I agree. But just for me, that's what I'm latching onto. I have to talk about this. I want to hear it in your words, this idea that the reason people procrastinate is often because every time we deliver something, we are putting our self-worth and our beliefs about ourselves on the table and how exhausting that can be. Right. So let's paint a picture here, right? So to people to relate to. So you're you're sitting down to write a proposal for a marketing campaign or write thinking back to when we were in school, write a paper and you're turning it into your professor and... Um, you, you know that you should get started if you're going to perform well and you're going to be sleep better and all these things, but we don't, what's going on. We, so we want to write a good paper. In fact, we might want to write the best paper the professor has ever seen, or we want to write a paper that's better than the last one. Cause you didn't feel so good about it. So you want to overcompensate and you're putting that on yourself. At the same time, we also have feelings of, we want to protect ourselves. And when we write that paper, who we are, our self-concept is wrapped up in that. Or at least we can imagine that, right? We can see it as a product, but it's a product that reflects our abilities, our potential, our deservedness. Do I belong in this company? Should I have, do they make a mistake to admit me to Princeton? Those can all be on our, on our minds as we're working on that. And again, so on the one hand, that raises our intellect, our not only certain thoughts, but it raises this emotional intensity. So many people who are, procrastinating will feel that intensity, right? They're like, I'm so activated. I'm so agitated that I'm stuck. I can't think. Does that sound familiar? Oh, yeah. That's an indication. You're like, but wait, it's just a three-page paper. It's just a proposal. It's just a draft. That what's on the line isn't the product, right? That's a signal to you. Like, why am I feeling so, having such a strong reaction? And then, but take that as a real question, not as a judgment to yourself. Why am I feeling this? Let me introspect. Let me examine what's going on. What am I feeling? Where is it coming from? What does this mean to me? Is there a story I'm telling myself about the significance of this thing? Am I placing it in some historical context for myself that actually is actually not very relevant to them to this particular moment or activity or week to do item? Am I imagining some future consequences that again? are completely conjectural, but all that can re- influence us. At some level, those are some of those are material things. Like, I'm worried I'll get a bad evaluation. But many of those, if we dig beneath that, or have resonances for our sense of ourselves. Well, I, I'm the marketing guru in this team, so if I can't do it, what does that mean? Or, you know, I was 
hired here to do X, Y, or Z, and my boss took a risk on, took a chance on me to give me this position. And if I don't do this, I'm kind of betraying that trust, that interpersonally, or I'm showing I really, I wasn't a good choice, or I'm not really capable. I don't have that potential. Um, and so those are can be really fundamental. And so those can be operating on us because of the meaning or significance we've attached to the task, that three-page proposal, or even that email where we go, oh, we get stuck, right? I'm presenting who I am, right, to people through the, my production. And so we're, and again, so on the one hand, when we are agitated at that point, we just can't perform very well. Then that can reinforce, well, I'm not, well, if I'm not able to write this email, I write this thing, then I guess I'm not so smart. Rather than, oh, this particular moment, where I'm activated and agitated and anxious, I'm not able, for temporary reasons, to perform at my best. Very different interpretation, right? I've got these understandable human reactions that are preventing me from moving forward, and that we all need to protect our, the self. The motivation for self-preservation is completely understandable, but largely unhelpful and not inevitable. We can change that. Is that kind of getting at what you're asking me? It is. Do you think it's healthy the way we from age five to 20 plus our primary experience as humans is to be evaluated by others? <sighs> you hit the nail on the head, the word evaluation. You know, many of the best parenting strategies from Dweck to who who probably owes something to a guy named Heim Gannat, who wrote in the 1950s, is, and I don't know if you're a parent, I'm a parent. Uh, yeah, I got two to, little ones. Is to withhold judgment. And like when we're interacting with our kids, just be the announcer of the football game or the baseball game. And so around the left end, just describe. Just be present to try to put aside evaluation, maybe observe to describe, and of course to be present. So I think this evaluative context, and then the meanings we attach to these evaluative contexts, and material benefits and problems or dis, you know demerits that attach to that. These are real, and I think absolutely right. Schools have become more and more focused on evaluation with summative tests uh, for, for understandable reasons. You know, theoretically, as an educator, I don't agree with them, but I understand. Um, so I think that's actually right. We're constantly being evaluated in the world of social media. My daughter's 18. She probably wouldn't want me to even mention that I have a daughter, but um, the world that she lives in, the the world that Princeton students live in, let me just put it that way. Um, They're constantly being evaluated, compared, and then they compare themselves to literally a global population. I grew up in Southern California in a medium-sized town. I was a big shot at my high school because there was nobody, who was I comparing to? Yeah, exactly. That's great. You know, that's awesome. That's not what people are experiencing now. So it's not only that we compare and evaluate, it's what we're compared to and what those standards are and the incessantness of it, I think, is having real consequences on people. That's what I, that's my unsubstantiated personal theory. What's a better process? What's a better way to be in the world? Most of my answer to that is not directed to children or parents because it's really reliant on adult active conscious intervention and choices right so adult minds and bodies and brains and from experience and also developmentally allow us to intervene in automatic processes like emotions so a lot of that is to to recognize oh i'm getting these messages from society from my family from my corporation from my country from my 
Reddit community and to try to gain awareness of those and then and then evaluate those through some understanding of I think we all need a theory of human action. We all need to understand what it means to be human. And we don't get much training in that. Even in psychology classes nowadays, it's not really about how to be human or how to act in the world. So I, my, my, frame, my journey has been to think about the human condition. Why do people act the way they do? Why do I act the way that I do? What is the nature of the reality that I live in, the social world? And then with that knowledge to try to make conscious choices, and then here's the last thing too, you know, and, and no, those are big forces. It is not a surprise that students are getting online and going down rabbit holes on the internet. There are multi, multi-billion dollar companies with super smart people who've designed the interface to do that. That is not a surprise. Um, so then saying, oh, I feel so bad because every time I open my laptop, I get distracted. No, that's not, don't be surprised at something that's totally expected. Uh, and don't feel bad about it. But know that's what's going on and make some choices. So I think it seems harder than ever to make these choices. Um, the, the technologies of attention and the commodification of attention. And, I would, and I'm going off and around. No, but no. The, the commodification of our social relations. So people call it social media. I think that's absolutely the wrong term. It's corporate mediated social relationships. We There are fewer... Can I say that again? Corporate-mediated social relationships. So interpersonal relationships. For most of human history, there was no profit motive between me and you. Now, every time I'm on a platform, there's a profit motive. And the design to make money is intervening in my interactions to you. And I'm being reminded, and there's stories and things. And that those um, imperatives for corporations are not necessarily humane or human. And they're not necessarily serving me or you and our relationship. So everything becomes mediated by that that way of thinking, um, and you know I don't know who who coined the term social media, but I bet the corporations did. Oh yeah, because it serves their it serves their way of thinking. But if you really think about it, and I would just say this is the natural conclusion. A hundred years ago, most music there was no exchange of money. It was in your community, in your neighborhood, on your front porch. A hundred years later. Almost all of it is. Not all of it, but almost all of it is. Sports. Look at you said sports. When I was a kid in the 80s, there were very few uh, clubs that you paid for. It was part of your school. So, okay, now there's money involved. Now there's money involved. There's companies involved. People's profit involved. So the larger point, I'm not a conspiracy theorist or something. I'm not, that's my point, but um, almost all of our, much, much more of our human interaction is mediated by the the ideas of, of corporations and profit. And these are often not humane. And so we need to be able to figure out how to navigate. And I, would, I just put it, I think the, the challenge of today's youth, because I think about it a lot, is how do I live a meaningful, humane, ethical life in a world dominated by bureaucratic, inhumane institutions, right? That are corporations. Yep. These are super powerful technologies. How, how do I find my way through that? Um, I think it's possible. But I think it's really hard. Let me ask you this before we wrap up. Based on everything we talked about, self-worth theory, and then what we just ended with, corporations kind of having their way, using the end result of profit to, most importantly, deeply impact our self-worth and then our relationships. What would you impart on people listening as it relates to how 
you hope we utilize our understanding of our self-worth in the way we live our lives? I guess a couple of big ideas. One is that if we give ourselves a chance, we can find worth in uh, our creative and curious exploration, that that is worthy. To build our own knowledge and understanding of ourselves is a source of worth. Um, to serve others and consciously do that, family, friends, community, society, if we give our chance to do and understand those things, we actually will feel pride and a sense of achievement. Um, that can coexist with other kinds of achievements. And so trying to you know, to, to find ways that those, I came said this before, that those two things are in alignment with one another. To be creative and to be ethical and say, okay, does this fulfill my values and my objectives? Then the second big idea I'd say is, and this I've come to more recently, and I, I can't say that I read a lot about this in Marty Covington's work. That's not to say it wasn't there. He, he very prolific, nine books and I don't know how many, hundreds of articles, um, is the crucial role of self-compassion, is to put aside our judgments of ourselves and others and our imagined judgments of others of ourselves and be compassionate and start with, I'm just going to look. You talk about experiment. I'm going to explore. I'm going to experiment. Um, and I'm going to look inside and I'm going to put aside judgment. Uh, I'm going to put aside evaluation um, as the source of getting to self-acceptance. I love that. Nick, I have... Thoroughly enjoyed every minute of this conversation. Where, so much, for, Me too. for those that feel the same, which is going to be most people, where are you? So you've written some books, you've got some talks. Tell us where we can understand more about Nick. There's not a whole lot of places. I, that's a weird answer, I'm sure. I'm not much of a, uh, I'm not very savvy. Um, so I don't, well, I'm in the moment, in the process of working with a colleague to develop a platform to some for some courses, one on overcoming procrastination, but it's in the works. Haven't you written Probably books though? I have written a book, okay. um, co-written a book with my mentor. Uh, it's for professors, but okay. um, it's, you know, so those of you who are interested in it, but it's based on about learning, um, but it's based on self-worth theory. I've written a number of articles and things like that. Um, the, certainly the TED Talk, the TEDx Princeton Talk is a good place. And actually, if you go on that, I don't know if you noticed, Chris, but I actually read those comments and res respond. Oh, so if okay. you ask a question, because I get great questions, it makes me think of new things and I'll put aside an hour or two on the weekend and it's fresh for me. It allows me to, to respond to people. So um, that that's a good way. Um, I'm working on developing because I get so many questions like that and people track me down via email, yeah. which I, I like. It's yeah, fun. It uh, makes it real to me. Yeah. Um, I, am work, I am actually working on a WordPress site right now. Good. But, um, so the short answer is those are the places. That's great. Um, I'm kind of using this platform to to try to shape and influence people in a positive way. Yeah. But not not there yet. No. Hey, that's perfect. I love it. Well, Nick, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for being on the show. That was our episode with Nick Vogue. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for being here. Thank you for spending an hour a week with us. We really do appreciate it. And if you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can always email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you really enjoy the show and you want to support us, head over to Patreon and become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, just head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. 
We've officially done it. We've moved back to weekly. So you'll have more interviews to listen to each week. So make sure you stay tuned. We've got a lot of fantastic interviews coming up. And we'll see you all next episode.